Welcome to Hell on Earth, Appendix 5, Revolution. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Matt Chrisman. So, you may have noticed that despite us billing this series as a 30 years war history, the last part of our story ends up in England to cover their civil war and revolution. We've made the case that these are two parallel conflicts, largely instigated by similar internal and external circumstances, but we then see England go in a strongly different direction, a direction that eventually leads it to a position of global dominance while Central Europe stagnates. So today we wanted to dive deeper into the English Civil War, its causes, effects, characters, and its place in the larger history of modern revolutions. And to do that, we are honored to be joined by history podcast royalty, uh, though more of a Gustavus Adolphus than a Charles I, from the Revolutions podcast. It's Mike Duncan. Mike, welcome to Hell on Earth. Uh, it's very nice to be here. I am not in any way connected with any royal dynastic family. I am a, <laughs> a Republican tried and true. Uh, and to the extent that I deserve any honorific, it is merely uh, to be the first citizen of history podcasting. <laughs> in any way. First royalty. among equals. Yeah, it's merely Duncan. the first among equals. Uh, just the fact that I always get my way is uh, neither here nor there. <laughs> Um, so Mike, you just wrapped up your entire revolution series, uh, concluding with the Russian revolution. Uh, we hope that this interview might give you a chance to go back to the beginning where you chose to start the modern revolutionary cycle in England. Uh, so with the benefit of having completed the project, let's just start with, uh, how do you see this English civil war fitting in as the beginning of this process of the era of modern revolutions now? Yeah, I did have to go back and revisit all this stuff because, you know, when you sent me these emails, I was like, oh, yeah, I should go back and, and review sort of what I wrote. Real, and that's 2013, 2014 is when I was working on on this particular part of the project. So it has been a long time. Uh, so it was fun to go back to the beginning and review what these crazy people were up to, uh, because there is no England like Stuart England, in my opinion. Uh, everybody focuses on the Tudors or then they get to like sort of the high empire period or, uh, you know, the Victorian era. Era, but for me, like nothing beats the Stuart period in terms of the the kinds of ideas that are churned up, the kind of people that are running around out there, um, and then the whole thing really gets kind of buried in the his, in the English historical memory. They really don't think it's that big of a deal. They think it was just kind of a thing that happened, and then things went back to normal, and they don't really need to talk about it anymore. A very um, English way of processing this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they're like, well, we do revolutions without any blood. That's our thing. <laughs> um, that's what makes us unique. Like the whole century of, of, of absolute nonstop civil war. Uh, I don't think you actually get to make that claim. But, you know, when I look at, you know, you know, if you take these conceptions of early modern revolutionary values that are churned up in kind of liberalish sort of ways, like liberal and Republican values of uh, uh, constitutions, of participating in government, of, of sort of drafted bills of individual rights, like a lot of those things are being churned up in the English Civil War period. And they're amongst the first to really be talking about these ideas in political ways and revolutionary ways. You know, if, if I had to do all of this all over again and I had unlimited time, you know, there, the Dutch rebellion and the Dutch revolt against the Spanish has, you know, there's a lot going on in that conflict as well that sort of feeds into what's going on in England and England feeds into what's going on in uh, the Netherlands because they're so tightly linked at this point. Um, but I do see so many of the things that then what we would now call like liberal or bourgeois revolutions that that define what revolutionary movements are all about really through the mid 19th century are starting here in the 1600s. And I think it really is an appropriate place 
to to begin any story of modern revolutions. Right. So I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that you see the conditions that produce the English Civil War, the English Revolution. I don't. Do you use those terms in, interchangeably when when you think about the? There's like, there's like so many different ways to describe this period. <laughs> there's the Wars of the Three Kingdom. There's the English yes. Revolution. There's the English Civil Wars. Uh, the British Britain and Revolution. Um, yeah, I use all of them interchangeably. It's just it's just a giant twenty five year conflagration. Um, that that lacks any kind of but but people argue about it there there are revisionist historians who don't think that any kind of revolution actually took place that it really was just a civil war conflict between competing political factions and it didn't really go beyond that i don't i don't buy that argument um but certainly one that gets made a lot well we'll talk about that a little more in a second but you know we we see kind of in the english civil war english revolution a bit of a blueprint laid out for how these events began in this kind of conflict of an upwardly mobile yet stymied uh, middle class against a calcified monarchy. Um, so, you know, w- what parts of this revolution do you see as the templates for how future revolutions will take place? Yeah, I mean, and it's a, it's a lot, you know, like uh, I think because th- there are so many things that you can you can pull out of the English Revolution period and map directly onto uh, both the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. You know, is is there a is there a clique of dissatisfied nobles who are out of power who would like to be in power? Yes. Uh, are they going to start turning towards more popular rhetoric in order to uh, put pressure on the king? Yes. Uh, are there sort of uh, mobs operating in the major urban centers that are putting pressure on the monarch because they happen to be living in that urban center? Yes. Uh, once the revolution gets going, does do the victorious revolutionaries then split into factions where there is a sort of a more, a more radical faction that uh, sees the conflict as opening up ground for ever newer ideas to come uh, to, to be expressed? And those amongst the more conservative that are, people who are now conservative, who were the original clique of liberal nobles who really just like <laughs> I just wanted to be minister of the interior. I didn't want to have an entire revolution, but I definitely wanted you to not be the monarch anymore, or at least uh, bend a knee to us rather than the other way around. So kind of, kind of, kind of point by point in the, uh, the, the stages of revolution, I think uh, the English revolution pretty much ticks every single one of them up to, you know, at the end, you have this sort of more authoritarian figure who is coming in, who uh, is reimposing some kind of order. And then there is ultimately a full turn of the revolutionary wheel and a, and a restoration. Yes, but then also along the lines that you were saying that there's a revisionist take about it because of, you know, England's precociousness and kind of how it's starting in the both with at its time the most advanced institutions and then relative to other revolutions that would come later, less advanced institutions. There's a way that you can see that its revolution is a little, you know, mutated, stillbirth. Uh, It doesn't result, at least in the first, uh, you know, cycle with the Commonwealth and the eventual devise of the Commonwealth with a a full, like, assertion of bourgeois power over the monarchy. It ends with a restoration fairly quickly. So what are the ways that you see this as, you know, its earliness, its prematureness um, affecting the ways that it's different from other revolutions? Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely comes uh, like a century or even a century and a half before other you know continental powers are articulating some of the things that are that are coming out of sort of the the long parliament and you know Charles's reign as a attempt to reign as um as in personal rule without parliament um that where 
where the English wind up at the end of the revolutionary cycle is quite advanced compared to the rest of Europe. And so even though, you know, if you talk to somebody like uh, John Lilburn or Gerard Winstanley, uh, does the does this revolutionary period advance to its farthest personal uh, farthest pers- uh, possible point where it's a republic of of equal citizens you know standing uh, in full equality before the eyes of God no it's not those things but does the king give the power of the purse ultimately to parliament uh, are they allowed to like veto legislation are they allowed to have some uh, major say in who are going to be the counselors of state yeah all of those things mm-hmm. and so those are the kinds of things that the bourgeois revolutionaries of the 18th century and the 19th century are also going to be shooting for sort of we are the we are the landed power we are the commercial power uh we are the, we are the people who are being taxed and therefore we should get to uh set what tax rates are what's what things we're going to spend money on like we should be the ones who are making these decisions not you some individual uh relic of a bygone era right so since this is the first modern revolution it's sort of inevitable that it's going to contain within it a lot of things that are from the previous age and that are you're not going to see in future revolutions, uh, uh, specifically the role of religion. Uh, like yeah. no, no modern revolution that comes after it has uh, religious conflict and, and like differing religious views as, as central to it as, as the English Civil War does. Because uh, after the English Civil War, that, that, uh, that vocabulary transfers, you know, to like, you know, more abstract notions of you know citizenship or whatever uh but at, at this time that the only language they had for those sort of concepts is the language of god uh so i was wondering if we could talk a little bit about just how that influence that that religious context uh influences the english civil war uh and the way that it plays out yeah it's a great the english civil wars are great for that in being that pivot point between sort of the reformation and the modern world because they're they're doing both simultaneously like they're having this very modern political revolution but it is using the language of the reformation conflicts that had gone before it and by the time you get up to England at this point you know like catholics have been soundly defeated they are they are sort of a permanent minority class uh, who are you know face special restrictions and uh, special taxes for being Catholic? So when it comes to these political conflicts uh, uh, being expressed in religious terms, it's between really uh, like sort of high Anglicans uh, in the Church of England and these more radical Puritans uh, who are coming out of you know the Calvinist tradition, and that that becomes the conflict, and it just shows how. These religious schisms, people are constantly organizing themselves around these. What I think would the three of us sitting here today would honestly consider to be fairly trivial disagreements about how to organize your existence. You know, is there going to be a rail? Or is there going to be? Is a there going to be a rail? Which way does the altar face? Is it facing east or is it not? Like those I will kinds you of if little you put things. A rail yeah. in my church. Exactly, and and people took this really seriously, and and one of the you know one of the fascinating things about dealing with, with the past is you can't just say, Oh, well, this is silly little business that this is all just window dressing for what's really going on because they, they, there was a, a, a real devotion to religious thought that it, it's how they encountered the world. And so people like Cromwell and Fairfax were very devout Christians on top of everything else. Uh, the levelers and the diggers who are the most radical phase of the English revolution are expressing their, um, 
political beliefs and their economic beliefs uh, in extremely religious terms and very Christian terms. And then, yeah, as Matt, as you said, once you advance another 100, 150 years and you're having these same sorts of debates kicked up by the French Revolution, like religion is a very big part of the French Revolution, but it's a bunch of atheists who want to abolish revol- uh, abolish re- uh, religion as opposed to just another religious sect. Although that conflict between sort of the this, not to get off on the French Revolution, but the conflict between sort of the civic-minded atheists like they operate a lot like a, a religious faction absolutely would have yeah. in previous terms they had their own uh sets of ideologies and even martyrs um and uh, and those sorts of things so it, it is interesting that then as you go forward religion i mean religion doesn't really play a role in the american revolution that much um and in most of the other revolutions i talked about it's not a huge deal but here you know presbyterianism puritanism you know anglicanism catholicism like these are major major factors that people took really really seriously well going off those uh ideas of religion because you know the presbyterian the impl- implementation of the prayer book is like the spark that lights the tinder basically of this entire thing uh so let's go back a little bit to the conditions that created the revolution i i guess the main thing that i want to get to because you know we both covered how the revolution began extensively in our series is like what would you say it is about England itself and the conditions there that made its conflict in the 17th century uh, turn into a revolution rather than, you know, kind of the the morass of inter-elite struggles that we've spent time covering on the continent in the Thirty Years' War or more noble rebellions like in the Fronde or peasant revolts as we see all over Europe? Like, well, what is it about England's condition that turns its situation into a revolution. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this because, you know, I don't want to give the answer that's just like, well, the English are more, you know, as a culture are more liberty loving yeah, than, yeah, yeah. you know, than, than other, than other the cultures about England is that they're more English. They got the liberty gene. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, so I don't want to get into this like sort of cultural determinism that there was just, you know, the character of John Bull, um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, had them do X, Y, and Z things. But when I think, when I think about the English, I mean, there's no way parliament is the thing that makes England unique I, politically. The early establishment of, uh, of, of a regularly occurring uh, representative body of the major nobles and landowners of, uh, of the realm who are meeting regularly. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, by the time the French Revolution happens, you know, there wasn't a states general that was also operating in France, but it had ceased to have any kind of uh, real function and it wasn't called for, for 175 years before the French Revolution. Whereas in England, the the expectation of Parliament having its say and the expectation of Parliament being a regularly convening body that you can get together and that there isn't that there is an institution of power that is outside of the monarchy, um, I do think gives a certain color to how you think about politics and how you think about, um, you know, what is right and what is just. And so the, the existence of parliament for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, I do think puts a, a sort of a unique spin on, on politics in the Anglosphere. And you can pull that all the way back to the collapse of Roman authority in Britain. Like mm-hmm. the, the, you have this o- almost overnight total collapse of imperial authority in, in Britain uh, and then these waves of uh, of settlement coming from Germany and coming from Scandinavia, and this uh, this sort of uh, Anglo concept of you know uh, of of, par- of parlaying together, you know, because there is mm-hmm. no central authority that anybody can uh, at that point adhere to, 
And by the time you get the establishment of like real dynasties, it's on top of this like deeply enmeshed structure of representatives that are the only way to like keep these these warlords basically on the same page. Yeah, and they and they did have some concept of like liberty liberty in the aristocratic sense, which is like the freedom for me, a noble, to do what I want to do independent of the king's will, as opposed to like a modern conception of liberty. But they that was very strong. And when people during the English Revolutionary Period, and I'll you know, I'll just name check John Lilburn again, you know, he's talking about the freeborn rights of Englishmen that have been sacrosanct for a thousand years. Um, <laughs> they were they were drawing on, you know, these these very radical and modern notions. They they were always reaching into their own past to justify them. And they had things in the past that they could point to that justified, no, the king can't just levy taxes as he sees fit. The king can't just lock people up as he sees fit. This is, these are actually bold new innovations that need to be resisted as opposed to, um, you know, like it, it's, it wasn't the case that they viewed the monarchy as something that was old and calcified and, uh, and was decaying. They saw it as something that was new and active and innovative that was actually trying to undermine all of the traditional rights that, you know, Englishmen were due by their, you know, by the fact of their birth on this um, mossy rock north of <laughs> Europe. <laughs> but I but I think but I think that that's that plays a huge role in these things. Well, then let's uh, move on to some of our top characters, some of our favorite guys uh, from the English Revolution. Uh, and of course, we have the two strongest poles of the story, Cromwell and Charles. Um Two individuals who are uh, very much defined by their times, uh, both propelled and constrained by the mindset of their day. Uh, let's start with Charles. As you just uh, outlined, you know, the people of this time, you know, saw the institution of the king as something that was being innovative and new and pushing in directions that it had not gone before. So can you talk a little bit about your take on the man who is doing the pushing, uh, Charles I? What is your take on the character and historical role on Charles I? Stuart, and of course, fans of revolutions will know that this know is what's a coming. bit. Yes, <laughs> um, yes, it is. It is canon that Mike is very frustrated with Charles the First, mm-hmm. um, and that I see him as somebody like like. And I said this in the show too. Like like, let's start like at the beginning. Was uh, Charles the First some tyrant, some despot, some murderous, um, you know, evil lord? He wasn't any of those things. Um, I don't think that he was even a particular, he, he wasn't a bad ruler in the sense that he was abusive or exploitive or cruel in any way, shape or form. Um, but he did have an inflexibility to his own mind. And I think a, a distinct lack of imagination that I, that I don't know how to precisely define like where that comes from. Um, he was the second born son. Like he was never meant to be King. His older brother was far more talented and far probably better equipped to be King than Charles was. And it's something of a tragedy that his older brother died, which brings Charles into it. Um, in a way that I don't think Charles really wanted or, or was going to prove uh, fit for. And then there's a, there's this other business about his dad, who's James the first. And if you study, um, like the history of political philosophy or European political philosophy, and you want to get to uh, to defining the divine right of kings argument uh, as it sort of comes up in the 1500s and 1600s as something to sort of theoretically replace some of the the feudal contracts that had preceded them, that you're going to read James the first because James was the one who actually articulated best of all the concept of the divine right of kings. And you can, obviously, I don't agree with the divine right of kings is like an I as like a as like a theory of government. But if you're gonna if you want the best version of the argument, you're gonna read James the first. 
And, but James the first is also well known as a, as a very, um, you know, ready to make a deal type of King. Like he was willing to compromise. He, uh, he understood the the practical bounds of politics. And so it was kind of like he was doing, he was doing, James was doing the work of being a practical politician during the day. And then at night would go and have these kinds of like fantasies where like, but <laughs> the reason this is okay is because God has told me to do it. And I've been anointed by God and his son, Charles kind of inherits all of these writings and all of these ideas. And he really takes them far more literally than his father ever did. And so James, ha- excuse me, Charles has these ideas about him as king, um, you know, representing this divine, you know, this divine expression of divine will. And so if anybody tries to push back on him or do anything that's not what he wants, then he thinks that this is some kind of blasphemy on top of everything else. And he simply cannot handle that. And then he also has this this turn of mind that he wants things to be uniform. He wants things to be clean and uniform. And, and actually, it reminds me a lot of Constantine in this way um, that that I, I I find Constantine doing a lot of the same things as Charles, where he just he didn't like the idea of a bunch of different things happening out there simultaneously. He just wanted there to be one religion, one god, one king, one realm. Like he was at, they were trying to knit together Scotland and, and England on top of everything else. Like it was it was a uniformity process. Um, that it, he just, and then when this runs up against people who don't want what he wants, um, you know, Charles just didn't understand that other people had ideas too, and other people had wants and needs. And he was just happy to uh, kind of blow that aside. And this is what fatally undermines him because he doesn't have the juice to do what he's trying to do. See, that's why I, I, I can't help but feel a little uh, sympathy for Charles and, and, and kind of stick up for him a little bit just because. I have a hard time imagining him ever being able to come aware of just how much things had changed around him, just how much like the, the social ferment, especially in you know cities like London, had changed the relationship between sovereign and and his uh, subjects, and was never he, there was no way he was ever going to come into awareness of that until he you know smacked up against it. I, my my the thing that always gets me with Charles is, is the indecision at the crucial moments, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 oh, yeah. the unwillingness to pick a path. And specifically, uh, Barrick to me is like, that's the, the moment where you just are like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you went to all there's, this there's trouble. Se- there's to- several, there's several times where it's just, yeah, what are you doing? Like, we'll help more on that in a minute. You're like, what are you doing? You got these guys up here <laughs> to get them all the way to the border. These these Scots and now you're just gonna you're just gonna shake hands and walk away. I mean, if if you are going to go with the whole divine right of the kings, like God is at my back thing, you really have to commit to it. You you can't you can't at the last minute decide. uh, I'm just gonna you know try to negotiate my way out of what at that point had clearly become a uh, ineluctable conflict. Yeah, he he always thought that he was one move away from like the world's greatest. Uh, like comeback checkmate, right? <laughs> that yeah, sure I'm cornered, but like I'll ma- I'll move here, I'll move here, and then the next thing you know, I will have turned the entire tables on you, and I'll I'll get out of this with checkmate. Um, and that is that he so he would make a deal with somebody, he'd make a deal with the Scots, or he'd make a deal with the Presbyterians, he'd make a deal with the Independents, and then he would immediately try to use that as leverage to get an even better deal from one of their rivals. He was constant. He constantly was trying to play these people off of each other, but he just wasn't good enough to, to seal the deal. He wasn't good enough to win the game that he thought that he was going to win. So then, uh, there's Charles 
And then there's also on the other poll, uh, Cromwell. And, you know, we could talk about Cromwell a bit as an individual, and he's certainly uh, kind of a fascinating guy. I've certainly through the process of doing this have uh, gotten to form a, a love for Cromwell's turn of phrase. Uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, Cromwell and his contemporaries, um, you know, from their more insecure and agitated social position, we see them able to move further uh, politically, able to kind of sense what Matt was talking about, the shift in terrain and push things further uh, than anyone, even themselves, could have possibly imagined. Uh, But then they eventually kind of outstrip what there was a social language or grammar to comprehend and, you know, in the way we tell it, that is one of the reasons that the entire project ends up collapsing. But to you, Mike, um, on their own terms, uh, where and how do you think Cromwell succeeded and where, where and how did he fail? Well, he won the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is no small thing. Uh, that That's where Cromwell comes from. That's where Fairfax comes from. That's where the new model, that's where so much of this comes from, is that he was a part of that clique who, uh, when the sort of the parliamentary side broke down into the peace camp and the war camp that Cromwell was one of the leaders of the war camp. And I think that, and I think that they were just right about the, the argument was Charles will never compromise until he is defeated in the field, right? We have to win the war before we do anything else. And I think that they were right about that. I, I don't think that, um, you know, we, we saw Charles be refused to compromise even after he had lost the war. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he was going to do it before he lost the war. Um, so in that sense, you know, the thing that Cromwell set out to do, which is win the war, he succeeded in fully. Uh, after that, it becomes quite a bit more dicey because I, I'm broadly sympathetic to what Cromwell was trying to do, but he was erecting, he was trying to erect new institutions that, as you said, don't really have the social support or nobody even really knows what it is that's supposed to be happening or why. And then when things don't go the way Cromwell would prefer them to go, he purges parliaments. He shuts them down. He dissolves them. He's doing basically the same things that Charles was doing during personal rule, which is like, why aren't you guys doing this right? Um, (laughs) I'm going to disband you and we'll recall you and see if you can do it right next time. Uh, And if you don't, then I'll just disband you again. And so Charles does, excuse me, uh, Cromwell does fall into that uh, pattern of people just aren't doing it right. And anything that goes against Cromwell's conception of what the post-revolutionary settlement should be, whether it's um, whether it's somebody like Arthur Hazelrig who wants parliament to be the thing, like there are parliamentary absolutists out there who their refusal to compromise is not that uh, they're angry that the king is gone, but angry that parliament doesn't isn't walking away from this with all power. So there is a degree to which you know Cromwell's idea of what should follow the monarchy just didn't have uh, enough broad-based support. And he wasn't able to, for you know, for as personally influential as he was, to the point where they tried to make him king, uh, he could not actually force people to do what he wanted them to do. And that's also part of why the, the project falls apart. Uh, yeah, as, as you said, there's, they had not, the social base of support for this new form of government had not uh, yet come into being. Partially because uh, any hope that they might have gotten that from, you know, the common people had been wiped off the board uh, by the suppression of the levelers and such. Yeah. And 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 the and the intransigence of parliamentary absolutists sort of not taking yes for an answer when it comes to 
parliament is going to have a lot more power than it used to, a lot more functions. And by that point, they were like, oh, but we we want parliament to have all the power, yeah, not share with anybody. And yeah. so that that also becomes part of it is even the people who should have been Cromwell's closest allies in this were rejecting him for for falling short of their own ideals. So uh, the execution of Charles I is, is kind of amazing when you consider how no one uh, in and in the positions of power in the lead up to it had an interest in seeing it happen. And in fact, I wanted to kill him, tried <laughs> their hardest to prevent that from happening. Uh, and Charles just continued to force he put, them. He put his, he put his own head. He, it's like, it's like he, he was sitting there with the ax, yeah. like trying to chop <laughs> his own head off. And I get that. It's like, if you can't live in a world where you're not the king that yeah. you thought you were, then you might as well be a martyr than just mm-hmm. some irrelevant loser. You got to, that's why you got to import some Dutch guy who like has learned <laughs> the lesson and is willing mm-hmm. to like be up there in his fake throne uh, to, to actually do that. But when do you think it becomes after, with all these people trying their hardest to keep Charles from being executed? W- at what point do you think it is it inevitable that they they have to that against ev- all their uh, interests, they decide this this has to happen? It seemed like Charles, he was executed in January of 1649, right? Yes. Okay, so it's it's Christmas 1648 is when that's how long out it goes before that's it. It's a done deal. I don't I don't think it was a done, done deal uh, until so it's maybe like three weeks before he was actually killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and I think that that final decision did kind of rest with Cromwell and he he like took a week with it. You know, he didn't know. And I, and I don't think it's clear whether he was just, you know, stalling or whether Cromwell himself was genuinely unsure about what needed to happen. Cromwell but has a lot of moments ve- like that. Yeah, it's very, very late hours. And you do feel like at any like Charles could have stood up on the scaffold and been like, you know what? I changed my mind. Let's do the deals. And they would have been like, OK, let's do the deals, man. We didn't want to do this. Like, we just want you to agree to let us, you know tax ourselves. <laughs> this is the whole thing. Um, and, and obviously, uh, you know, however you're going to settle the religious bit, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's incredibly late. Um, and I don't think that regicide was on anybody's mind at all. Um, as you said, and it just is a thing that, ha- that then happened of almost its own initiative. Do you think that it was around the same point when Charles himself like came to terms with the fact that he was going to be a martyr for the cause of Kings? Or do you think it was it basically until the ax swang that he was like, Oh no, no I, no, I, f- I feel like Charles actually probably made up his mind quite a bit earlier than that. Um, that as Matt said, you know, he didn't want to live a degraded life. Uh, mm-hmm. He, what he, he believed in what he was fighting for. Like there, there's, I don't find any like, real cynical manipulation coming out of Charles. Like he believed in what he was trying to do in the same way that Tsar Nicholas and Alexandra believed in what they were trying to do. They, they believed that they had been sort of entrusted with the stewardship of this great, you know, monarchical institution and that to be the one who watered it down, degraded it, let these commoners in to kind of run the show, that that would be a humiliation that was far worse than continuing to be King under, under such conditions. So you do, I do feel like Charles, like in the, in the last sort of rounds of negotiations, when you find him really not interested in cutting a deal, he's like, yeah, you've kind of already made up your mind maybe uh, like a year before it happened that like, I'm going to like, I'm not going to do anything that compromises my beliefs. And if they kill me, then that's fine because I'll go to heaven. It's funny. Also just thinking about the parallels between Charles and Tsar Nicholas is that between both of them on the domestic side, they're both noted for having 
eventually for Charles, it, t- it takes a bit, but like this, this kind of picture of marital bliss and yeah. uh, household, like, like within their own houses, they are fully embodying what they believe their role as, you know, father, protector, king, a husband, king is. Uh, and I think it's not a coincidence that both of those families have this like kind of beautiful on their own terms, domestic, domestic life, obviously other than uh, the czar's children. But, you know, they, they both they both are enacting that so purposefully in their households. Yeah, for sure. And Charles was a good husband and father. It's mm-hmm. uh, widely commented on. Yes. Uh, so we this is kind of roping back around to we were just talking about the, um, you know, Cromwell in the Commonwealth and kind of Cromwell's own inability to to cohere it. But I guess I want to dig down a little bit more and just talk about the Commonwealth in general. Uh, you know, we kind of talked about Cromwell's inability to to forge a kind of leadership point in it to make things work. But um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about, uh, you know, on the the kind of digging more to the social basis and, and what else were the reasons that the Commonwealth was unable to cohere into a real polity at the time after Charles's death? I mean, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, so I would say that part of it is there is this kind of like selection process of victors in these various factional struggles that are going on in Scotland, in England and over in Ireland that the winning faction is sort of smaller and smaller compared to the population as a whole. And so by the time you get to the regicide and the, the creation of the Commonwealth, I think most people in most places throughout England, their number one overriding goal was we would like peace please. Right. We don't want any more war. Like we hate the wars. Like we don't like impressment that the clubmen are everywhere at this point who are organized, who are organized local bands to fight off any army that tries to come in and like provision from them or try to, or try to conscript their population. So there was a, there was a general exhaustion with war and conflict and the Commonwealth because of its very nature kind of existed in an antagonistic position towards the entrenched interests, uh, not just in the British Isles, but kind of what would eventually be throughout Europe. And so that kind of antagonistic relationship with everything else that was happening around it kind of seemed to guarantee that if the Commonwealth continued, that there would just be more war and conflict. And so it's like, I'm just kind of, so I think if you talk to the average person out there, um, you know, and at this point we're talking about peasants and villagers, they're just like, dude, who cares? I don't, (laughs) I don't want this anymore if it's going to mean more conflict. And then just in general, that there is a monarchical turn of mind that you can't, you can't just turn off in a couple of years. You know, you can't just flip a switch and say, we're Republicans now. And a lot of the peasantry, a lot of villagers, a lot of just sort of like average, you know, English people, uh, had fine feelings about the monarchy. You know, maybe they didn't like what Charles was doing specifically, but it's like, but we didn't intend to become a Republic. Uh, you know, the laws of the realm are all wrapped up in, in having a King. And so when you, when you get to the very end, you know, the end of the cycle of the, of the Commonwealth period and the restoration is about a democratic election, right? The, the, the rallying cry of the Royalists is a free, fair and open election because they knew that if it was put to sort of that kind of national referendum that the monarchy was going to trounce the commonwealth and and then then it absolutely did and the reason why Cromwell in his later 
in his later days and the people who followed him are trying to undermine free and fair elections and not have them not have them be held uh, is because they know that the Commonwealth will be voted out uh, the minute the people actually get a say in it. So I think that has a huge part to do with it. It's just like it just didn't have the votes, you know, it, it morally or politically or economically. Well, then also along those alienating lines, because uh, I know, you know, when you did this, you did a bonus episode on the uh, the original war on Christmas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you do you think that of this small and increasingly vanishing ruling clique, the kind of puritanical nature of them uh, and their various culture wars, the uh, the stuff on Christmas, the, you know, ban- the bans on plays, performances, is, is, how much of an effect do you think that stuff has on their ability to forge popularity? I mean, put it, putting a number on it is hard, but like nobody likes it when you try to cancel fun. Um, yes. And that's, you know, like having having your feast days, you know, let's go get drunk and bait bears, you know, like if that because that was what people did for a good time back then. Um, yeah, th- I think there was a, a general awareness that the Puritans, one of the things that, about the Puritans is that they didn't want anybody to have any fun. Uh, they didn't want people getting drunk and they didn't want people having festivals. They didn't want people to stop working. So I, I think that it does, you know, it certainly does not endear them to anybody the bigger, like how much of a reach did all of this actually have, I think is, uh, something that's, it's harder to pinpoint, you know, it's going on in London, but there were actually a lot of people in London who supported it. Um, and a lot of it was coming from some of these like Puritan businessmen and they were like, we can get one more day out of our, out of our apprentices. <laughs> and the apprentices are like, no, we, we at least get Christmas off. Um, but like, I see, I see a parallel to it in, you know, when you get when you're in the, when we're in the French revolution, and uh, the Republic is trying to reform the calendar and reform time and do some of those like really fundamental changes to people's rhythm and especially to their uh, their leisure time and their relaxation rhythms and, and when they get days off and how they get days off and what their obligations are um, that that the, the process of changing the calendar in the French Revolution definitely alienates a, a, a quite a number of peasants against the Republic. Uh, and I think a similar thing kind of goes on. Uh, during the English period with the wars on Christmas and those sorts of other things, but how much they were able to do it because they don't, I mean, they don't have the apparatus to run right. like some totalitarian war on Christmas. Oh, it's just police like state edicts exist. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I said this in that, in that episode that you can always see that there's this pattern of they're constantly re-upping the statutes against these things because nobody's paying any attention to it. Like they're not <laughs> able to enforce this at all. They can only make these declarations and then have people go, Oh yeah, you guys anyway thinking about maybe accepting a letter from Charles II, seeing what he has to say about <laughs> all of this. Because he, he might, he, he might I don't know, restore theater to to England and create an entire era of, of, of high comedy and drinking. So just one more thing on Cromwell and trying to situate this with the other revolutions. You know, as you said in some of your appendices to revolution, you know, one of the hallmarks that you generally see is kind of after the initial phase of revolution, there's usually a moment where the revolution kind of collapses on the shoulder of a single strong man, you might derisively call them, or, you know, a charismatic leader figure. So, you know, how how do you see uh, Cromwell, I don't know, in conversation or compared to, you know, a, a figure like Robespierre or even, you know, Washington or any of the other figures that end up being these singular figures to emerge from later revolutions? Yeah, th- these guys, you can kind of divide them up into two categories, which is uh, the reluctant autocrats and the enthusiastic autocrats. Mm -hmm. So I would not, I don't put Cromwell in the same category as Napoleon, who was Mm -hmm. an enthusiastic. He could, he couldn't believe his good luck. Uh, you know, it being, you would not have had to take the week to think about whether he would accept. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of things, but, 
Um, but Cromwell is is operating in a very similar vein to I think George Washington when it comes to his relationship with individual personal power that he didn't really want it. And he he is pretty consistent about this. He rejects the crown multiple times. Um, I don't think that there's ever a point at which you could have convinced him to put a crown on his head. I don't think he wanted that. But at the same time, he was um, he he was strong enough in his beliefs in himself. And then, as we said earlier, these guys are all uh, very godly folk. And so he believed that God was on his side and God was sort of guiding his decision making and, and ratifying his decisions that that he was looking to Cromwell was looking to put England and himself in a place where he just became one sort of leader among a group of leaders as opposed to being the only leaders. And he didn't accomplish this in his lifetime because not maybe unlike Charles, he really didn't want to have anybody else do it in the way that they wanted to do it. He wanted them to do it the way Cromwell should do it. So I I don't see him as being enthusiastically autocratic, but also, you know, when push comes to shove, did he ever set down power? No, he did not. Um, And I don't think that was going to happen anytime soon either. Uh, It's, it's, it's obviously speculative. But I do wonder what, what do you think about what could have been different if Cromwell had just lived maybe another decade, if he'd had like maybe 10 years to to affirm his rule, to maybe get uh, old tumble down dick a little uh, a few, uh, you know, laps around the track uh, of authority so that he could uh, maybe, maybe find something, <laughs> maybe yeah, find somebody yeah. else <laughs> or yeah. find somebody else. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you think there's there's any possibility of, of the Commonwealth, the Cromwellian Commonwealth holding on? If he just had uh, a little more time at the top, I am skeptical. Um, it, it does seem like the whole thing is, is a bit of a paper tiger if it's even a tiger at all. But that said, you know, one of the uh, very underrated causes of the transition of the Roman Republic to the Roman empire is the fact that Augustus lived for so long, right? He get, he, he was starting his career as a teenager and then he managed to outlive and outlive again basically every person who remembered life under the Republic. And so that by the time Augustus was dying, this very sort of um, cobbled together uh, power base that Augustus had achieved for himself. It's not like he just declared himself emperor. It was this kind of like cobbled together thing that, yeah, what if what if Cromwell lives for another, let's not 10 years, let's say 30 years. Um, I mean, yeah, he died at 59. Where, he could have lived until his he, mid 80s. Or yeah, he, you know? yeah, he could, he could have, he could have held on and held on some more um, that maybe that does, you know, his, his most intransigent enemies simply die. Uh, people who remember life before the Commonwealth are not around. People who grew up under the Commonwealth and who think it's perfectly fine uh, are now coming into the system. Uh, yeah, I could see it theoretically happening, but the thing just seemed so tenuous. You know, he didn't really have a good clique of allies because he had even kind of fallen out with Lilburn and the other major generals by the end of his life. Um, you know, that there I mean, is yeah, a he moment. He was still in the cycle of calling and dismissing parliaments up until the very end. There was no like he, he still hadn't found a foot of stability. Yeah. And there was a and his and and like what is his base of support? It's the major generals and the new model army. Like that's that's where he's coming from and that's why he is in the position that he is. And so by the time that he gets to falling out with the major generals and sort of alienating them on top of everything else, uh yeah, the thing just doesn't seem like it's gonna hold together. So maybe at best you you push off the restoration for another decade or a decade and a half or something like that. Yeah. Or, or, you know, the he's overthrown and, um, is executed. I could, that's, that's as, as 
uh, uh, plausible an end to this story as anything else of him living another 10 years. He doesn't live another 10 years. He lives another two years. The Commonwealth falls apart and he winds up uh, getting executed and quite, yeah, man. And they were, they wouldn't have just chopped his head off, man. They would have done so many different <laughs> things to him. I mean, they, what they well, did to the body, they what they did to the off, body yeah. was, was, uh, was pretty, pretty grotesque. So let's uh, talk for a second about like kind of the international implications of what happens to, uh, England in the mid 17th century. I guess this is a fairly broad question, but, um, do you, do you have any thoughts about how, you know, the English, English civil war, it's, it's effects up into the restoration, like, how that affects England's greater trajectory on the international stage uh, at this time in the 17th century. Yeah, well, it's 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 in this period of like Britain becoming a thing, right? I don't think that Britain becomes a thing because of these conflicts, but certainly the, it's all wrapped up in it. And when you get into you know the Anglo-Dutch wars, um, which start to bring the British Navy, you know, the Royal Navy out into the fore is like the thing that is going to define the next couple, you know, what, 300 years of, of naval warfare uh, as the Royal Navy. And then there's everybody else. Um, but also like a lot of these Lords, uh, the, a lot of the Puritan Lords who were organizing against Charles, uh, they were involved in colonization schemes in the new world. And there was, a, there was a lot of sort of broadening of the, of the British perspective beyond just the Isles uh, to look at themselves as people who could live in the whole world. Uh, Cromwell, is you know he he spends a good chunk of the protectorate trying to organize like a league of Protestant states um, because he he believes that that's going to be sort of a uh, one of the great ways that England can uh, make its presence really felt in Europe is by allying with the Dutch and by allying with you know the other sort of like Scandinavian Protestant powers and what is now an increasingly post Thirty Years War world um, which I don't know if we're going to talk about this but I mean. Every revolution that I've talked about has some kind of like major international dimension. There are there are foreign powers who are using the revolutionary factions often for their own ends. Everybody sort of picks a team inside the the domestic revolution, and that doesn't really happen here because all of the major powers of Europe are like, no, dude, we we can't do any. We, there are no more theaters, no yeah. <laughs> no more theaters to this war. Like we don't have the money, we don't have the men, we don't have the resources. Um, so they were really kind of left to do their thing on their own, but. I think in broad terms, uh, the ascendancy of parliament, uh, the ascendancy of, um, of modern modes of financial, uh, financial, um, uh, management of the state is going to come out of these conflagrations. And especially by the glorious revolution, you know, you have a, a well-funded, group of rich lords who have the ability to kind of run their realm the way they want to run it. And that creates an explosion of economic and military activity that then from that point on, Britain is one of the, one of the big five or big six or big four, whatever generation you happen to be in. I was going to get to the glorious revolution and your thoughts on it because you don't really cover it in your uh, series. But before we get there, I did just want to ask, Going forward and again, trying to link this up with other revolutions, you know, I was trying to look up what American revolutionaries thought of the English Civil War. And I found a lot of like fairly uh, contradictory takes, like you're pretty much as likely to see uh, Cromwell being called a tyrant uh, by the founding fathers as uh, sure. Charles the first. So I was just wondering if, if in your research, if again, as this is the first of the modern revolutions, if you uh see many people in the other modern revolutions hearkening back to the English Civil War 
from an internet like the French or, or anybody, anybody else in the up into the 19th century. Yeah, well, I mean, the Americans definitely did. And they they did see Cromwell as an autocrat. And that that was something that they were trying to avoid. I think that George Washington was very well versed in the the history of the English Civil Wars. And I think that there are several things that Washington does in the course of his career that are specifically because like like when the when the Newburgh conspiracy got going and and the Continental Army officers wanted to basically march and on the Second Continental Congress and do what the new model army had done to Parliament and Washington shut it down. I have not confirmed this. Like there's no uh smoking gun piece of correspondence from Washington that confirms this, but I would be very uh I think it's very likely that he was well aware of what Fairfax had done and what Cromwell had done and specifically did the opposite thing. Cause he fell in love with Sally Fairfax and Sally Fairfax <laughs> is, you know, she's whatever, like a great grand niece of Thomas Fairfax. Like it's all part of the same family. Right. Um, and then of course, one of my favorite anecdotes from the whole period is when uh, years and years later, when Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are both serving as diplomats in Europe after the American revolution, uh, they went on a tour of the British countryside and they, they go to Worcester and there's some peasant, um, you know, like leading around some sheep and John Adams is like, do you know what happened on this field? And and the peasants like my sheep go to the bathroom. I don't know what the, <laughs> what the answer is here. And he's like, this is where, you know, good men died for Liberty. And you should know that. And he basically yells at this peasant for not being aware of the history that was made on this ground. Oh, he's like, this is the most I've been to, I've been to the place with the, uh, we put a tree there. Um, some like American vice admiral, like 20 years ago, planted a tree where John <laughs> Adams yelled at a peasant. Um, but those, those things, yeah, they, they were very aware of it. And then the, the French revolutionaries are sort of taking from there for their inspiration, both Republican Rome, um, and, and a lot of what happened in Britain, they, they were, ve- they were also well-versed in those, um, and uh, in those events, Lafayette, who I obviously wrote a book about, was constantly accused of being a, a Cromwell in, you know, in disguise and, be- and very specifically in those terms that Lafayette is trying to be the Cromwell of the uh, French Revolution, which Lafayette was not trying to be the Cromwell of the French Revolution. Um, but the, uh, and then the, 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 you know, the last little thing I'll mention is that, God, when he was facing his own death, uh, Louis the 16th, when he was, when he was, uh, caught, locked up, he was reading, uh, from the works of Charles the first and trying to sort of place himself inside the, the context of a, of a monarch who had been killed by his own people. Um, so it, it was at least through the early 18th century, uh, a very sort of vital historical precedence for a lot of what was going on. After that, the French Revolution just blots everything. Yeah, out, yeah, yeah. Right, and you just and everything becomes talking about the French Revolution, and really anything that happens before the French Revolution is just not go, going to have the same uh, uh, power that talking about the French Revolution does. Okay, so we take our series up to the Glorious Revolution as kind of the ultimate end of this process of a Parliament yeah. asserting control. Uh, the as you say, the full turn of the revolution. You. Uh, and yours, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, at the uh, at the restoration. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to see if you had any thoughts on the restoration period up to the Glorious Revolution, how that fits in with the the full cycle of the English Civil War, the English Revolution, right here. Well, I, it is properly the cap to the process, you know. And if I had to do it all over again, you know, I would I would have done four episodes on the Glorious Revolution and not then been 
uh, dogged for the rest of my life by <laughs> questions about why I didn't do the Glorious Revolution. Would you have done it as a like a separate miniseries, or would you have just tagged it on to the end of the English Civil War? Like I don't know. Would it, whatever would be most complicated and difficult for a podcast app to download <laughs> yeah. is probably the choice that I would have made. I don't know what I would have done with it. But um, it is, it, I mean, it's all the same issues. It's practically all the same people. Um, nice. It is, you know, the the same types of arguments. And then that is really the settlement that settles things once and for all. The thing that cracks me up about the Glorious Revolution is that, as I said earlier, the English really like to pat themselves on the back for being so sensible. Like, oh, well, you know, when faced with intransigent sides, we just, you know, sort of sat down and had a cup of tea and uh, and figured it out. And it's like, no, the, the reason why the Glorious Revolution happened the way the Glorious Revolution did is because you know, not just within living memory, but like, you know, 20 years ago, we were embroiled in a nonstop civil war with each other. And we don't want to do that again. And I do think that there is, you know, the, the glorious revolution to the extent that it is bloodless is bloodless because of what happened in the 1640s and 1650s. Uh, it's not just, you know, the British character and it's, I feel like I'm really coming down hard on the British. Like they like they toot their own horns. Oh no, they have it. They absolutely (laughs) have it coming. I have lots of British friends. They don't, they don't, they don't talk like this. I'm, I hope I'm not inventing too much of a British straw man. Well, I feel, I feel Um, like now not so much, but certainly if you read like a British historians from, you know, maybe like the, the early 20th century, there's, there's certainly an element of that character that comes through. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's definitely a part of it. It's definitely a, a great pivot. You know, I don't know how you guys described it, but it's very clearly like the hostile takeover of the British crown by a bunch of Dutch bankers, right? (laughs) Which kind of seems exactly like what it was uh, in the end, Um, which then, I mean, that's where the Bank of England comes from, is that, which I think is maybe even more important than whatever other little parliamentary settlements were going on, is that they chartered the thing that was going to be the engine of their empire, uh, up to the present day. Uh, yes, that is basically our take on it. A, uh, hot, okay. a, 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 a fiscal merger with the, uh, the Dutch business state, uh, to create oh, fiscal a, merger. How diplomatic. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> I called it a hostile takeover. Well, you know, we're, we, we, when we, we write the press release afterwards, yeah. we, uh, we can kind of massage these terms. Um, you know, you were just talking about, um, you know, if you were doing this again, you would have covered the Dutch, Re- uh, the Dutch Revolution. You, you, well, you said you would cover the Dutch Revolution as well. You said you would cover the Glorious Resolu- Revolution. I was just broadly, you know, if you were now knowing what you have know, we're doing 10 years of revolutions podcasting. Uh, are there any other things that you would uh, kind of approach differently if you were to, uh, you know, be starting with the Eng- English Civil War now? Well, the, I mean, the main one is that this period is as rich in sort of uh, figures, ideas, details, events, you know, everything as I think the French revolution is, you know, it's not happening on a smaller scale because it's happening in Britain, not in literally the largest kingdom in Europe, but there's 50 episodes worth of material, uh, in the English civil wars. And I did it in 15 because that was sort of the task that I set myself when I started the podcast. And it was the, it was the very process of trying to sort of distill and summarize what's going on and all of the things that I was not talking about and things, events that I was leaving out. And I was like, when I get to the French revolution, I can't, I can't do this again um, because it's simply too difficult. So I, you know, the, the version of Mike Duncan that wrote 103 episodes on the Russian revolution would do at least 50 on 
all of this because it, I think it really is that fascinating of a period. Um, I think, I think that's really the biggest thing, but would I want to go back and do that again? Like, no, because I, there are other revolutions that I wanted to get to. And I didn't want to spend 50 episodes. Like the, the whole reason I didn't want to start with the Dutch revolution is because I didn't want to start with something called the 80 years war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like that just what didn't seem like a great launching pad for this thing that is a, supposed to be about many revolutions. Yes. And if I do the 80s year war, 80s year war, uh, then I'm just going to be stuck with uh, in the House of Orange for forever. And people are going to be like, I thought the show was called Revolutions, not Dutch banking. What is it? <laughs> well, by that uh, token, then uh, who are your guys uh, from the English Civil War? Who are like the characters that stand out to you besides, you know, Charles and Cromwell uh, as the most uh, evocative and interesting. Or if you have any like uh, anecdotes that really come out too that you, that you, well, there, there's a you. couple, you know, I, I walked away from it uh, with a healthy respect for John Lilburn, um, who was, uh, he was both a great cavalry general and the author of Britain's, you know, first written constitution. So he's like, He's a sword and pen guy, which if, you know, if you're a historian sitting around being like, oh, he's good. He's as good with the pen as he did with the sword. Like we're, we're always impressed by people like that, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, de- definite, definite double threat. Um, but also uh, uh, Gerard Winstanley, who is uh, the leader or at least the the best writer of the diggers. Uh, because the diggers are, the diggers are an absolutely fascinating group of people. You know, there, there's not that many of them and it. And it's, it is sometimes hard to say like, oh, this was actually like a real social movement because there weren't but a hundred of them, um, you know, hanging around. But, but I read a lot of Win Stanley's stuff and he has a remarkably modern voice. I don't know if you guys have read we, you know, yeah, True yeah. Leveler. Yeah. It's like, it's remarkably readable. And it was notable in that, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading all these other contemporary people. I'm reading Clarendon and I'm reading Hazelrig and Cromwell. And then you get to Winstanley and you're like, man, this, this reads very smooth. Um, So I definitely appreciated him for that. I mean, he's also like identifying like class conflict as like the engine of social uh, pathology, like 200 years before Marx. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, God told me to tell you that land is theft, you know, all the, <laughs> all the, all the great stuff that's in there. And, uh, and then I think the last one who's, who's on the other side is, is Clarendon, who is Edward Hyde, um, who was a, a counselor to Charles the first. He was, a, what would be what we would call a constitutional royalist that he was in favor of reform. And then he gets attached to um, King Charles the second. And he writes the first great, history of the period, right? I don't know if you guys cracked that at all, but he, he, he wrote from a royalist perspective, but with, um, with notable, uh, uh, I would say honesty about the failings of Charles, the failings of the royalist side. Like when, when he talks about why they won and lost, like he's, he does really good analysis, even though he's a royalist, um, he's able to see the faults of the royalists and is able to see the virtues of the parliamentarians. And then he's also the one who drafted the declaration of Breda, which I think is, you know, one of the all-time great political settlements uh, that's ever been drafted because that was basically like, you know, invite Charles II back. Um, you can have all the really hard stuff and he'll take all the really easy stuff and just hang out in this um, giant palace and throw parties and try and then also, but also secretly work with Louis XIV to try to undermine all of you. <laughs> so like... <laughs> So, so Hyde, who's now Clarendon and like Oxford's Clarendon press is actually named after him. Like it, it's, it grows out, it grows out of his household. Um, so those three guys, I think, yeah, a dig, a digger, uh, uh, royalist and John Lilburn. 
That covers the, the gamut. All right, great. Well, I think that mainly covers what we wanted to talk about, about the English Civil War, the revolutions. But I uh, wanted to give you a few minutes because though you have uh, wrapped revolutions, you have already announced a new project. If you wanted to tell our audience what you're on to next, if that's, you know, even remotely in the, uh, the, the oncoming horizon. It is in the oncoming horizon. Just as of like last week, I, I finally started to emerge a little bit from my uh, post-revolutions hibernation. Well earned. Um, so yeah, so uh, me and Alexis Co, who wrote a biography of George Washington called You Never Forget Your First, uh, in addition to several other things, are going to start a show where it's the two of us talking about history books. Because there isn't really like a just sort of history book chat type show. Um, but we have, uh, we're, we're lining things up right now, like what books we're going to talk about. But the idea is that as new history books come out, that we will be like a place that people can come and talk about their, whatever new history book happens to be hitting the shelves, as well as going back and talking about great historical works of the past, like things that were formative to us. Uh, we want to do some things where we just do close reads on specific chapters. We're, it, we're trying to, we're trying to keep it sort of as wide open as we possibly can. Um, but like one, like, so we're, we're mapping out the first six episodes and one of them will be, there's a sort of a, a chapter tacked onto the end of uh, black reconstruction by Du Bois about sort of the role of history and, um, how historical memory has been manipulated by the post-Confederate South to like tell a really inaccurate version of history. Um, and so like, we'll do a close read on that, I think is one of the things we're going to do, but that's what it is. It's Alexis Coe and I talking about history books in a more uh, sort of conversational way, as opposed to tightly scripted Mike Duncan, which needs a break. <laughs> tightly, scri- tightly scripted Mike Duncan needs a, needs a bit of a rest. Well, I can tell you just from the two of us doing this for what we've like three years now, rather than a decade, uh, I am exhausted. So I, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very tight. It's very tiring. Very tiring. Um, any, can you tease a release date on that? And is it going to be its own, I assume, a new podcast feed? Yes, there will be a new podcast feed for it. Um, I will announce it through the Revolutions uh, feed and also the History of Rome feed, which people are still downloading episodes of the History of Rome. I'm going to finish um, that someday. Yeah, someday. It's one um, of those things where I'm always glad that there's a little more History of Rome out there for me. Boy, I wasn't. I was excited. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, <laughs> after I, no, that was actually at that one. That was that was very bittersweet. I didn't know if I was going to keep going or not. Um, but I, I we're I think we're looking at May. May right. uh, would be when this comes out. Awesome, awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, this has been great. If you don't already listen to Revolutions, listen to History of Rome. Keep your eyes out for what's the name of the show. Books, history books, man. That's the one thing we don't have. <laughs> Got to come up with a clever name. We'll uh, call it hell on. We'll call it hell on earth. Hell, on, <laughs> hell on the page. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Chapo um, trap home. <laughs> <laughs> just get the just get the search engine optimization yes, exactly. going. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. Otherwise, Mike, thank you so much for stopping by. This yeah, thank great. you. Thanks very much for having me, guys. <laughs>